You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. When it finally got down to about a dollar, I decided to buy the $4 call option two years out. Eventually, Antero got to $40. Uh, I, I sold most of my position probably in the mid-20s, uh, unloaded the options uh, sh- uh, shortly after that. Uh, so again, a life-changing uh, return off of that stock. And there were a few others like that. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. And as the host of this show, I try to bring to you new voices with insights that can both encourage and teach you. And I think I've done that today with a new guest. His name is Sultan Amirali. He's a self-directed and self-taught resource investor. I found him on Twitter at Sultan Amirali. Uh, the hashtag, his website is also consolidatedrock.com. Sultan, welcome to the show. Uh, for the first time, you have a background in financial journalism. Uh, tell us your story and how did you find your way into small resource stocks? Um, thanks you. First of all, thank you for having me on, Bill. And uh, as I was saying to you before we started recording, I, I feel like I made it because I'm on mining stock education. Uh, um, so how did I get started in mining stocks? Um, so I think I've always had an interest in investing and uh, that started, I, I think, early on in my life because, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money. Uh, there's a we're family of five. Uh, first generation Canadians. Uh, my dad was an engineer, but uh, single single income household, so everything had to stretch. And uh, you become acutely aware as a child um, when people have the latest transformer and you dump. And so uh, it was always a, a thing in my mind that I was going to make a lot of money one day, and I just didn't quite know how to do it. Uh, got sidetracked along the way, ended up in journalism, uh, and uh, uh, some people will probably know I, I worked for a large radio station in Toronto. Um, I worked for uh, a national national news in Canada, it's, uh, CTV National News, uh, and then eventually found my way to to uh, BNN, the Business News Network. Uh, that was in 2010. Uh, CTV and BNN are, are kind of owned by the same company. I was told, "Oh, you're going to go over to BNN for a few days, a week tops. Uh, you're going to be there. We just need to help them out for a bit." I ended up staying at BNN for on and off for about eight years. And I, I think I did everything there. I did a uh, very little on-air work, but uh, I was a producer of multiple TV shows there. Um, ended up working on their website uh, and then eventually into uh, a layer of management doing sales and uh, digital development of apps, data feeds, that sort of thing. And I got a good grounding in uh, uh, business journalism and a, a lot of guests running through that BNN green room. And I think the thing that taught me the most uh, when I was there was one of my first jobs was to man the Bloomberg terminal. And so there's a function that some of your listeners probably know, it's called NI News, and it's just a stream of news releases and press releases. And the job uh, was to take the interesting press releases and forward them onto the newsroom. And so I got to see everything that came in. I got to see what moved stocks, what didn't move stocks, uh, you know, things that were important that people missed. And it was probably the best education as a retail investor coming in cold that you could ever get because I got to see everything. And uh, um, I, I think from there, that kind of whet the appetite to, to start investing on my own. And I had a, I've always, you know, I think you have to know your personality when you invest. And for me, um, I'm, I'm cheap, Bill. I just don't, I don't like paying a lot for stuff. So. <laughs> 
you know, uh, the idea of the uh, bankrupt security, the uh, distressed asset. Uh, when I was working at BNN in 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, you know, this was around the time that Bill Ackman was buying something called general growth properties that had gone bust during the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, a great trade, uh, just a, an absolutely great trade. And uh, he bought the equity distressed. He didn't even have to go down the uh, the ladder on the cap structure or buy any kind of debt or anything like that. Eventually, he spun out Howard Hughes Corp. General Growth got bought by Brookfield Asset Management. Uh, and I think at that point, I was hooked. And so I started doing some investing of my own through the 2010s, mostly focusing on, I would say, I'm going to call it TSX Detritus, uh, TSX Venture Detritus. So these were broken companies on the TSX Venture Exchange, as some of your listeners probably know not the greatest exchange it can be highly speculative uh particularly when you're talking about healthcare, uh various types of roll-ups that sort of thing uh, and so and I, I did pretty well on that and there were a couple that i i one called patient home monitoring another one called holloway lodging read and those came to uh my notice because uh, at bnn we had a, sh- a calling show stock show and uh that also gave you a good gauge of what retail was looking at and so stocks like these get popular a lot of people call in uh the uh, the guest will comment on it, and then uh, eventually, when they crash, the guest doesn't want to talk about it anymore, right? And so, I found that was a could be a profitable hunting ground. Probably around 2017, 2018, that had kind of gone away. As as you probably are aware, um, you know, tech growth stocks had, had really taken off. 2015 was probably the last gasp of sort of the resource bull market, but uh, a lot of chatter about it commodities and i didn't you know to be honest i really kind of avoided commodities up to that point and i had made a point that i was going to learn how to do this because i i did remember in the early 2000s things like tech inco falcon bridge you know and just sort of seeing those in the news as a as a journalist you know being taken out taken over and there was a lot of money to be made if you can get the cycle right and so i decided that i was going to learn and the way i learned anything i was going to invest my own money and see what happened and uh Bill, they they chewed me up and spit me out. They, I didn't see him, I didn't see him coming, right? And uh, uh, I lost uh, I, I lost a, a lot of money uh, buying speculative mining stocks. And then at that point, I decided I have to learn how to do this properly. So I, I did three things. I I reached out to people who did do it properly. How do I build a basic model? You know, and I don't necessarily invest invest entirely off the model, but I, I feel like it's important to know how to do so that you can see how different costs affect what comes out the other end in terms of free cash flow. I read everything I could on Barrick and Franco, uh, just they're the biggest Canadian stocks in the sector, just to understand the drivers of their business, um, the things that they owned, why they own them, uh, how they how they grew the company. And uh, I think the other thing I did is try to subscribe to as many sort of paid services as I could. And that was an eye opener because, you know, for being blunt, 95% of them were not great. And, uh, uh, you know, understanding what the what the marketing was involved in, uh, in in the junior mining sector, and I think from that base, just sort of building myself up, I started off with uh, keeping it simple, uh, asset placed things where maybe it's trading below the cash value, and there was something valuable there, uh, uh, and then eventually worked my way up to knowing enough to feel like I could talk to a, a CEO intelligently. Uh, get some sense of it, and then adding a different piece onto that, talking to people around the CEO, and then eventually, okay, the deposits in this area, 
I have some skills uh, as a journalist. How do I find people in that area? And social media uh, makes that easier. You can always go on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, in my case, uh, the first time I did it, I found a mid-level manager for a mine in uh, the Abitibi region of Quebec and just sort of reached out and said, hey, would you be willing to tell me about your job? What do you do? Uh, how does your day-to-day go? And, uh, you know, using those little pieces is kind of how I came to mining stocks and eventually developed the expertise and, and more more importantly, I think the confidence to to make some bigger bets and, and to really make some investments that quite frankly have changed my life. Sultan, so one of the my critiques of retail resource investors is that they take information from newsletter writers or from a show like this on the internet, but they never actually talk to management and yes. verify the information. Any thoughts you can share here? You have to talk to management. Now, I'm not saying you have to talk to management all the time. Uh, I actually think that it's better to, you want to talk to everybody around management before you talk to management. I kind of look at how I invest is probably a bit different than most. And I think it comes from my background. I don't want to invest off a straight model because I have no edge there. I mean, I, I have a math background. I went to school for math, but uh, if this was math, then you and I wouldn't be making money in this sector. Well, narrative right? is more powerful than math oftentimes, can it be? Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I like to use what um, is called like a, it's, it's basically the, the, the framework that's used by intelligence agencies. It's called the mosaic framework. So you just get pieces from a bunch of different places and you put them together to assemble a picture. And based on that picture, you know, you have to decide the probability that something is going to 10x, 20x, whatever your return needs to be. Understand that there is a probability with any mining stock that's going to go to zero. What's that probability going to be? And there's no such thing as a bad investment. There's a badly sized investment and you have to size your investment based off of, you look at the facts, you look at the patterns and you see what doesn't fit. And I, I, I believe that in investing in a bank, I believe that in investing in a consumer products company. And I believe that in uh, investing in mining stocks. Um, uh, you know, it's very much a probabilities game. Like we're talking about uh, a sector that consumes capital on the whole, right? And the, the winners, there's, there's survivorship bias here, right? And uh, it's easy as a retail investor to get sucked into that survivorship bias. You have to go into understanding you, you're not going to know everything. And it's, uh, you have to size the bet appropriately for what you don't know. And so for me, talking to management is important, but it's not my be all and end all because I have to also know when they're lying to me or when they're fudging something. And the only way to know that is to talk to everybody around them. And you can define around as, uh, uh, you know, as any, in any number of ways. <laughs> but uh, for me, what that looks like is I want to talk to people who've done deals with them previously. I want to talk to people who've maybe worked with them previously. I want to talk to maybe somebody, if I can, if it's a large enough company, uh, who's mid-level in the company. Uh, I like to talk to people on the ground. Uh, actually doing the exploration. Not that, and that's hard to do as a retail investor, and I totally get that. Um, talk to as many people as I need to to feel comfortable with uh, the investment. Then I'll go to the CEO. You kind of sound like a job recruiter right now, you know? Uh, the way you're <laughs> analyzing it because yeah. someone gives you an application, and then I know uh, some of my uh, relatives that worked in the military, especially when you were going for a high clearance, they would go back to your childhood friends, knock on doors, and <laughs> ask about that person. Yeah. There's a great book on this. It's called The Sleuth Investor. And he talks about what he calls sleuthing. And, you know, after Mandelman, he was going through, he's going through people's trash. You know, he's talking to mistresses. And uh, uh, I'm not advocating talking to anybody's mistress. I'm not 
saying that, but like talk to everybody who's relevant and you will get a much better picture so that when you go and talk to the CEO, you, you, you're intuitively going to know uh, whether the person is being honest with you, whether they're holding something back. There are things that a CEO can't tell you, right? And that you have to intuit for yourself. Those things are going to be easier to intuit if you have a better understanding of the person who's across from you. And so uh, I've made big investments talking very minimally to the CEO, but I kind of know what I need to know. At the very least, you should be looking through filings. And uh, if you have questions, which you should, asking those questions and seeing what comes back. The only red flag I would, uh, like immediate red flag that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is if they won't get on the phone with you. Like if somebody wants your money, they should be, they should get on the phone with you, right? Now, understanding that with companies that might be a bit larger, that's an IR person most likely, but somebody should be getting on the phone with you. And if they're not, you know, why would you put your money there? So what you just described is a laborious process. Do you yes. do this for every single investment or only investments over a certain amount? Yeah. So it's, uh, to your point, uh, I do enjoy it. So, uh, and I have a lot of, uh, there's a lot floating up around up here, right? Um, I'm a pretty good user of CDAR. I, I know how to use CDAR. I know I, the most unuser friendly website on the planet. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm a, <laughs> uh, they, they changed it recently. So I'm going to have to, uh, redo my, uh, branding, but, uh, I, I feel like for a time I was a power user of CDAR. I knew how to use it really, like, I think better than most for a large investment. I, I, it's the works I drill down and, uh, I, I talk to everybody I can, uh, oftentimes the company might be the last person I talk to, um, for other in, in investments where I'm maybe creating a bucket, there's, you know, I'll do a higher level, uh, a scan just to make sure everything kind of checks out. And uh, I, I think it depends on, uh, to your point, the amount of money that's at stake. And uh, if I have done less money, I try to hedge my bet by position sizing again. I'll create a, I'll create a basket. And I, I tend to do this also with larger stocks because obviously if I'm buying tech, nobody's getting on the phone with me uh, if, I, if I own tech, right? Um, but so, don't you think a tech, investing in tech provides you less of a potential competitive advantage Versus yes. a small cap where there's a lack of information. Absolutely. And so uh, uh, I think if you're going to invest in something like tech, um, I bought it probably a few years back, probably in the 18 to $20 range. And uh, you get these kind of buying opportunities with any large cap stock. Tech in particular, I kind of like because if you remember in 2008, it went down to $3 and then it went up to 60 Um uh, now it's I think it's at fifty seven or fifty eight Canadian. Uh, I'm not selling that until I, you know, Glencore gives me my seventy bucks. But uh, uh, you know that was something I bought at eighteen, and it just seemed cheap. Um, and and this will happen time to time with large stocks, right? Um, something isn't being priced in. Uh, there's some sort of short term uh, blip, you know. And it doesn't mean that the uh, uh, it's a forever hold. I think in this case. Um, uh, you know, it's something I plan to hold until it gets bought out. Uh, but to your point, information asymmetry is something that you can use with smaller stocks. Absolutely. It doesn't preclude you from buying larger stocks. At the end of the day, we're just trying to make a return. And where can you make the, the best return with the, with, the less, with the least amount of risk? And sometimes that's mining stocks uh, in terms of sometimes that's a bank stock. Uh, and to me, my floor is, in, being a Canadian, is probably about 11 or 12% because that's generally the uh, the CAGR on a Canadian bank stock, uh, a decent Canadian bank stock between the dividend growth and uh, the growth in 
the growth in the share price. So, you know, I'm not in this to make 30 or 40 percent on a junior mining stock. I, I need to know that I can make 5x in five years and uh, and there's a roadmap to doing that or that I'm going to get a nice little income stream out of it depending on the stock. Um, something like tech, uh, to your example, um, you know, I, I thought that that was a good buying opportunity where, you know, $18 are probably worth closer to 40 We're seeing now that as QV2 comes online, um, that there's a lot of interest in buying that stock and even the um, even the coal assets, you know, I, I think when this gets broken apart at the end of the day, I don't know what, how, when it's going to happen. And maybe um, maybe the timeline doesn't work for me, but to me, $70 Canadian is probably the floor. So Sultan, if you would hold on to a stock for a 5X anticipated in five years, uh, do you also do shorter term trading within the sector if you see an opportunity? Yeah. Uh, something drops for any number of reasons. And this is where if you have your mosaic framework and something drops for a reason that doesn't make any sense, you can step in and buy. Um, I, I think tech maybe fell into that at one point. That that started as a short-term trade. And the more I was in it, the more I liked it. One that I really liked um, that I think is similar. It's become a core holding for me. It's Altius. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Dalton. That got down to $9 a couple of years back. You know, I can buy a junior minor, you know, copper play or something that I can already buy Altius, right? And uh, uh, I, it was just seemed like a no-brainer. I'm still holding it to this day. And uh, those sort of large stocks provide a backbone to the port- my portfolio. And so uh, I've been lucky and I've been blessed that my junior mining stocks uh, have done well. But in terms of capital put in, I, it's, it was 75% in large mining stocks, 25% in the junior miners. Depending on the day or what's happening, I you know, based on what everything is worth these days, I'm now 60-40 on the junior mining side, and that's because everything's outperformed. But that doesn't mean that my Altius hasn't gone from nine to probably about twenty, or that tech hasn't been close to a three bagger. You know, it's uh, um, you got to pick your spots, and uh, you know, just because you're you have an outlook on a commodity, it doesn't necessarily mean that a, a junior resource stock is the way to play it. And uh, this is all about making sure that you stay in the game. The last thing you want to do is, uh, and I'm sure you and I have both seen this, Bill, where somebody puts their life savings into junior resource stock X. And uh, the scariest emails I've gotten, Sultan, were when people are saying, Bill, I'm coming up on retirement and I don't have enough money. And so therefore I took a, a large chunk of what I have in the junior mining stocks. And I was like, oh no, it's like, I'm sorry you don't have enough money for retirement, but like you might get eight times your money in three years, or you might get one-tenth your money in three years. So just like, be very careful with that. Yeah. And and, uh, I think people look at these inspirational stories of people who went all in on mining stocks and there's survivorship bias there. What you're not seeing are the people who went all in and didn't make it to the other side. And and I... you know, you and I were talking a bit about this off air, but um, a lot of the people who kind of went all in, they would have been fine if they didn't work out because they had other skills. They probably could have gone back to uh, whatever it is they were doing beforehand, right? It, it wouldn't have been the end of their world. And, you know, I, I don't think it's in anybody's best interest to, um, you know, I, I know for me, as, I've, as my profile's kind of grown on Twitter completely organically and, you know, it surprises me to this day that, you uh, um, you know what the the most uh, gut wrenching emails I get are the ones uh, about people saying you mentioned the stock and I bought I, I put fifty thousand dollars into it and now it's like what do you think of it or constant messages about the movements the day to day movements and 
you know, you try to be nice about it and they're probably the same as you. And it's like, I don't care about the day movements on, um, on a stock that, you know, if nothing's happened, then I don't care. And uh, my life is designed around doing as little work as humanly possible when it comes to, I want to do the work up front so I can buy it. And then that way I know if something fundamental has changed, I, I don't hesitate. I am out. Right. But uh, I also know enough to know that, okay, well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a fixable problem. You know, maybe I want to buy more. Uh, you know, okay, that's uh, not a fixable problem, but I don't want to sell. Maybe I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna monitor this stock. And uh, the way I buy junior resource stocks is I, I use an averaging down system where I'll buy a bit up front. Um, you know, the second time I buy, I'll maybe buy double the amount, and it goes in orders of magnitude, so that by the the last buy, if it hits that that marker, I'm buying fifty percent of my position. So by the top something that I talked about on Twitter, by the time I have the full position, because I know myself well enough to know that, you know, I'm cursed and whatever I buy, it's going to go down right after I buy it. So, um, uh, buying tranches. Yeah. yeah, I buy in tranches and, but I, I wait the tranches. I don't wait the tranches equally as the stock goes down. If I've done my work and I'm correct and my thesis still holds, I'm buying more on the way down and, and I, I waited it. So that, uh, the, that last tranche that I buy should be 50% of my full position. Now, sometimes that can work badly. If I get it wrong and uh, I, I completely miscalculated and it's a full position, that can hurt because then I average, you know, but it hurts less because then, you know, my, my, my stock net price has dropped. And so I find it's a good way for me that works for me to uh, um, get my full position, not pay full price, get around sort of the mental barriers around, I have to have it right now. You know, stock doesn't know I own it. Right, so I can own a little bit to kind of satiate that for me, so I, I have a bit of the position, um, but still not just buy everything right away, and you know can kind of assess. Uh, and sometimes it's worth buying it just so I can track it, and then while I'm doing the due diligence, if I'm really excited about it, but without blowing myself up if I bought I, I bought it and then something came up. That Sultan, what what's one of your biggest winners thus far in your investing in junior miners career? Um. So I would say, I don't know if 20, uh, you, you know, you can tell me, Bill, but I don't know if 2020 counts because everything was cheap. Sure it uh, does. If you bought yeah. in March of that year, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so one of my best, so junior resource stocks, there's two types of junior resource stocks. There's the ones that kind of start up from a, you know, ground up, a good team gets together. And then there are the things that used to be up here that kind of dropped into junior territory and, uh, that's where I like to fish. So something that I bought that did really well is uh, a U.S. natural gas, dry natural gas stock called Antero Resources. That I think in 2020, 2019, it was probably about six, seven dollars. And I looked at it and I was like, ah, I don't know about this. And I, as you know, natural gas has been a widow maker for a lot of people. Uh, uh, I I don't know if you're uh, if you've been you were in the sector when Amaranth was around. It was this hedge fund where the guy went all in and bet on natural gas prices. One of the first stories I covered at BNN and the, the guy just blew himself up, right? I never forgot it. Um, a one-way bet on commodity prices, right? So uh, this eventually got down to about a dollar. Uh, and I didn't buy at a dollar, but um, I bought between two and four dollars. And and more importantly, because it was a US listed stock that used to be much more expensive. At this point, it was trading at about a $400 million market cap. I had added some options onto this as well. And so again, as it started to drop, I added in size. Um, and then when it when it finally got down to about a dollar, I decided to buy the four dollar call option two years out. And so eventually, Antero got to 
forty dollars. Uh, I I sold most of my position probably in the mid twenties. Uh, unloaded the options uh, sh- uh, shortly after that. Uh, so again, a life changing uh, return off of that stock. And there were a few others like that where twenty twenty was a, a was an interesting time because you didn't have to go too far down the value chain. Yeah, and so Meg Energy, uh, highly leveraged oil sands player. Uh, uh, Baytex Energy, uh, again, highly leveraged. Uh, these are all oil and gas. If we're talking about specifically about uh, resources, probably Paladin Energy. Uh, your, your viewers might know it from the Langer Heinrich mine. Uh, you know, and so that would, would have been about a 10 to 12 cents stock on the, on the ASX. I remember calling up TD Waterhouse every Sunday uh, talking to a gentleman as soon as the Australian market opened and uh, putting in putting in that trade and making that trade in real time. And uh, that was a stock that I, I think I sold the last of it last year, probably in the 60 cent range, but I sold most of it in the 80 cent range. And uh, I think what those had in common was, uh, it, you know, mining for value off of the balance sheet as opposed to mining for value in the ground. You know, understanding that if the commodity price turned the way I thought, the debt would get paid down quickly and your enterprise value is going to shift from the debt side to the equity side. And that kind of minimized my risk because I wasn't worried about drill results. I wasn't worried about, um, you know, management, you know, uh, management issues. It, it To me, that was a simpler way of approaching it because I had some previous experience doing it. Not for everybody. And you also, I also had to know because I've had times where that hasn't worked out. Okay. Uh, they've got it over their skis. It's too late. And I have to cut my losses and move on. And I would have been prepared to do that. If, but in those cases, those are probably some of my best winners. Uh, uh, I'm sure the next question is about some of my losers. Yeah, and, uh, let's hear it. But, be, yeah, but we before can, uh, before we go to losers, Sultan, yep. when you like do the net gain on your biggest winner, what was it? 20, 30x? Probably about 40x when you 40x. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that would have been Antero. Paladin obviously is a junior mine. I'm a, I mean, I'm not going to use leverage for junior, to buy junior mining stocks. Um, you know, Antero was kind of a, a unique case because there were call options available, liquid call options that you could buy. The, in that case, the time value worked in my favor. I was willing to pay up a bit for the time value because I wanted the, the time for this, you know, this thesis to play out. Uh, options are are not something I'd recommend for most people because the time element adds a, a third variable. Um, if you're going to use options, then you have to, in my opinion, you have to pay for you have to pay a premium for time in order to let your thesis play out. And none of us gets it right, you know. And the stock, and again, the stock doesn't know that you own it because uh, a short term option is essentially gambling. Uh, a longer term option, usually two two and a half years, that at least gives you time for your thesis to play out. And uh, I looked at the option as okay, well, if it goes, I'm buying it for sixty cents. If it goes to zero, I lose sixty cents. Per contract, that's fine. If I bought the shares, you know, at say three, four dollars or something, and I'd sold it at two, I'd probably be losing about two dollars. So in that case, I, I probably leaned in and probably bought a few more contracts than I should have. But uh, ideally, if you're going to use contracts and you're using that to replace buying the stock, then you should be putting less money up to uh, to do that. So your absolute loss should be similar. And in that case, if that makes sense. It does. And uh, I'll point out that Dave Lotan, a strategic resource investor, he views junior mining stocks as inherent call options. Whereas yeah, it's a race against dilution versus value creation. So like, why buy a call option on a call option? That's too much yeah. le- too much leverage. Yeah. 
Um, and and there was some there was obviously some infrastructure around Intero that was already in place, so there was some uh, uh, replacement value. I I kind of figured that my worst case scenario there was uh, a recapitalization of some sort that uh, you know at one dollar. I wasn't losing too much, right? And I, I didn't. I, I thought the idea of a zero was off the table. Some people probably dis- vehemently disagree with me, who were probably in the stock at the time. Um, and it, uh, uh, you know, I, I think with uh, traditional sort of junior mining stocks, uh, you know, like we're talking about, re- like Paladin or something like that. Then, uh, you know, I, I'm not a drill person per se. That's just not my area of expertise. So the Philo Minings of the world and. Uh, that sort of thing. It's just not something where I can compete and win. And if, you know, so I, I where am I, where am I going to compete and win? What's my competitive advantage? Um, if I, if I, I put my money into drill stocks early on and I, I got my money taken. Right. And, uh, I, I vowed at that point, never again. And I, I was only going to compete where I could win. And it doesn't mean that I've never bought an exploration stock. It's just, I know what I'm, I know what I'm buying going in and I know what my disadvantage is. So I size the position accordingly. That's excellent. What about some of your losers when you thought you were going to get it, but you were wrong or it didn't work out. Management blew it up, (laughs) whatever the case. Uh, So, you know, I think in the beginning, uh, stock that shall remain nameless. And, uh, you know, I I got a tip from a friend uh, who put me into a stock that was drilling in the golden triangle. I didn't understand anything about. uh, So I put some money in and it it went up on the first couple of drill results. This is great. This is uh this is so easy. I should totally do this, right? Um, why was I buying uh, TSX Venture rollups and doing all this hard work? This is great. And then the then the next set of drill, you know, I woke up one morning and stock is down forty percent. I didn't understand why. It's like I and that I realized how little I actually knew because another set of drill results had come out. Uh, Bill, I couldn't understand what was on the page. I didn't understand what was different from uh, and the first set of drill results to the second drill results. I didn't understand what happened. I went on uh, the chat boards and I was like, you know, that didn't give me any useful information. Uh, like, oh, I'm going to stick it out because I had already purchased it. And if, we, you know, the next set of drill results are good, I'll get back to my cost price. All the things you don't want to hear. And what I learned later when I talked to somebody who didn't know was, oh, that management team, they, uh, what's called twi- twinning the drill hole. They had already knew what was down there. They drilled it again, stock popped, sold some stock, live and learn. And uh, what I learned out of that was I had to understand what I was doing. So that was uh, probably my first loser, which shall remain nameless. It's still a publicly traded company. Um, uh, I'm going to mention some names here and uh, just so that I think it's more illustrative. Um, uh, a stock that I, I owned that uh, eventually went bankrupt. I actually ended up making money on the stock, but it was pure dumb luck. And it's a stock called Three Valley Copper. Uh, Three Valley Copper is. Uh, uh, do you remember this, oh, the old Sprott Resource Holding Company that they had had back in the day? It was. Uh, it was something I'd been tracking for years. It, it uh, you know, and it spent on some interesting assets at a Corsicol, still publicly traded. In Play Oil, still publicly traded. Eventually, they got rid of all that stuff and, and drilled down to what would they then call Three Valley Copper, which is a copper deposit in Chile. Uh, I did my due diligence. Uh, you know, highly levered balance sheet, which is something I actually like. A uh, lot of infrastructure in place that would be hard to replace. You know, talked to some people on the ground who said, yeah, these rocks are, they're interesting. Uh, there's something here. And I thought that they could thread the needle. Where I made my mistake was position sizing. I sized the position way too big for what it was. 
And when I talked to the CEO, very nice fellow, um, he's not there now. He had no experience. He was a financial guy, no experience on the ground. Now he did hire a geologist who I was told um, was uh, was very good at his job, and a mine engineer who was very good at his job. And I, I think the mistake that I made there was um, position sizing. I couldn't. I, I I only got out because there was another investor who was prominently in the stock, who after the first set of results came out and it was not great essentially said he was buying more and it kept the stock high enough for me to get out. If that didn't happen, I would have taken a, a huge six-figure haircut. And uh, Sometimes uh, those guys tell you they're buying more and they're selling at the same time. I'm yeah, sure, I know you're aware of that, but... Yeah. And, uh, you know, so again, that should have, what should have been a, a large substantial loss turned into probably a 30% gain. And, uh, but, you know, you have to you have to do a postmortem on any kind of investment that you make. And there's no way with any intellectual honesty, I can sit here and tell you that that was a successful investment. That was me getting lucky. Um, and and I, I, again, the, the, the problem there was position sizing and then understanding the rocks in the sense that people had, people that I trusted had told me that the rocks were there. What I, what I didn't account for was just the ramp up of the mine and that the mine itself was going to be pulling ore out of the ground that was maybe not where it needed to be considering where the balance sheet was. Uh, with a clean balance sheet, maybe they could have rode through it with, with a very unclean balance sheet, we'll call it. Uh, there's just not a chance. Um, as of today, I believe the uh, uh, Monero Trey Valley, the TBC deposit is owned by the uh, owned by the uh, the people who, uh, the debtors, uh, essentially the, the, the lenders now own the deposit. Um, something that's currently publicly traded and just didn't work um, uh, is Mako Mining. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the the yep. mine in Nicaragua. Um, I'm, I'm disappointed in this one because, in my mind, the management team did everything that they were going. They said they were going to do. I, I think the issue here for me was not understanding that deposit size matters and um, not just grade. Yeah, not just grade. Jurisdiction matters and uh, deposit size matters, and. You know, again, to be fair to the CEO and the company, they've done everything that they said they were going to do. They're, uh, uh, you know, they didn't define a resource. They they're pulling it out of the ground. They're generating cash flow. They're doing all the things that they said that they're going to do. Um, uh, the market's not going to give them credit for it because there's not a defined resource there. And as long as people don't know what the size of the deposit is, it looks like it's going to run out in two years. And that's just not something that people are willing to fund. Obviously, we all know the problems in Nicaragua. So when you're dealing with a small, single-asset company in a sketchy jurisdiction to be diplomatic, um, that's just too many things to overcome. And you can have the best management team in the world. Um, uh, you know, it's just there is just no way for that stock to re-rate, in my opinion. And while they are doing things correctly um, in in terms of developing the deposit and generating cash flow, there are just some things that kind of uh, I, I should have paid more attention to. Uh, and I think in retrospect, my mistake there was averaging down and not waiting and seeing how things turned out. Uh, and so took my loss and moved on. Uh, and, and I think the lesson there is if the thesis doesn't work, you know, uh, I, I feel like I assessed the risk correctly, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't get out right away when the thesis stopped working. I should have sold as soon as the, uh, 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 the stock didn't move with certain type, certain uh, results markers, uh, and and I think the last one that I, I'll talk about here is uh, uh, Salazar Resources. Uh, it, um, 
Miller, are you familiar, you're familiar with Aldomo and sort of the issues around that deposit in Ecuador. So uh, I had made a determination that um, the locals on the ground, the CSR, wasn't as bad as it was being made out to be. Reasonable people can debate whether that was correct or not, but that was my assessment. And Based uh, on I, phone I, calls per your, on, your due yeah, diligence process? Yeah, talking to people locally. Um, and, uh, and also to reading media, uh, Spanish language media. Uh, two things that I missed. Guillermo Lasso is deeply unpopular and he was pushing through mining and development. When he, uh, I ended up uh, trying to sell that stock uh, when he was uh, sort of booted out of office and now there's an election going on. Uh, what's become clear is the sort of indigenous confederation down there is a, a very powerful political block. And these controversial mining projects are a political football now. And you know, my opinion of the local support on the ground for El Domo doesn't matter anymore. Uh, you know, because you know, there's a there's a political aspect to this, like favor trading, or you know, you support me, and if you if you want to support me, you're going to support my agenda. And in the in this case, the agenda is making sure that this mine never gets built. Um, so this has become a binary bet on whether there's going to be a permit later this year. And in the size of that position, a binary bet. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, it can't be sized that way. So I made a couple of mistakes here. Uh, I sized the position too big for the liquidity in the stock. Um, getting out was very painful. I still own about 25% of my previous position, and that's what I'm comfortable with considering you know, the risk involved. Um, did I, the Ecuadorian sort of Spanish language media, I did the best I could with that. But what I, I failed to understand is um national media is different from local media and uh i i clearly underestimated the local opposition to the to the mine and uh i think i did that because when i talk to people on the ground um you have to rely on primary so if, if i'm going out to cover a fire bill i'm tasking you what did you see you know what happened the who what when where and why i'm not asking your opinion on fires in general or the police department or uh, uh, fire retardant foam, or any number of other factors, and I think I, I maybe let uh, the people on the ground their their macro opinions kind of color instead of just relying on their first party recollection. So my mosaic was skewed, and so I did not size the position correctly. Uh, I I misunderstood the risk reward there. I thought I was buying something in the ten cent range that could be worth sixty to eighty cents. Um, I figured my downside was five cents and unfortunately i was correct my downside is five cents but i didn't expect to hit it so quickly so uh and it and it happens uh and i think the worst mistake i made there was again averaging down i should have uh when, when the first signs of lasso being in trouble were there i should have at the very least helped and so i think three different ways to make a mistake in the mining sector i've made them all yeah uh, and you know we could we could probably fill a whole podcast bill with uh various mistakes that I've made, but, um, uh, can you summarize the top thing to watch out for, for new resource investors that are just yeah, getting into I, this? Yeah. I think this, the, do your own work and, um, write, write it down. Yeah. You have to write it down because if you write it down and you understand why you're in it, what could go wrong, uh, look at the facts, look at the patterns and see what doesn't fit and see what doesn't fit can mean either the stock should be higher than it is today or, um, the stock should be lower than it is today, or, or in most cases, it's it's accurately priced. Um, 
But if you write it down, when something goes wrong, you can go back to that and say, okay, these are the three factors that I need to go correctly. Something's happened. Does it factor into my three factors or four factors or five factors, whatever it is? Um, if you do that, then you have a better sense of when to average down and buy versus um, when to sell or when to, okay, I need to hold here. And for me, a lot of the value that I get out of Twitter is that it, it acts as a real-time journal, real-time check. And so it'll, and also unlike the, the book that I, I have here, um, that, uh, you know, the so do you note, do it for your own purposes more than trying to communicate with others? Your Twitter account yeah. is your own journal? My, my Twitter account functions as my own journal. Uh, that's what it started as. Now it's turned into something else. And, and mining Twitter has opened up a whole world to me that I didn't think was possible. Um, like I was saying to you before, Bill, like I was on the radio in Toronto. I was I did national TV. I get recognized more for my Twitter account than I ever did. <laughs> <laughs> Is that good uh, or bad yeah. for your ego? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, like, uh, I, I, I don't know. And it, it's, uh, you know, and people recognize the name. I guess it, the name is, is pretty unique. I get people reaching out to me and it's helped grow my network. And so I get something out of helping, you know, if, if people get value out of my Twitter account, and I'm, I'm grateful for that because I've gotten way more out of it than I put in. And uh, um, it started off as a way to just get opinions on things, temperature checks. Um, then it became the sort of real time kind of notebook on certain positions. I can't obviously tell people before I buy it or, or and things like that. But uh, um, I probably have a string of DMs, I, uh, 100 different DM strings with various people. And some of them are retail that are just really sharp. Some of them are clearly hedge fund managers and some of them are quite, you know, CEOs of, of uh, you know, publicly traded companies, right? And uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have that network if I wasn't on Twitter. And, I, and I'm, I'm grateful for it every day. It's made things a lot easier. Uh, uh, ideas come to me now. I don't have to go sifting through CDAR. A great point. What commodities are you bullish on? Could you give us a snapshot of your mindset here? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, soft commodities are interesting to me, just based on what's happening in Ukraine. Um, like the grains, then? Yeah, the grains. Um, you know, wheat in particular. I'm still trying to figure out how to the best way to play that, and and there is a bit of a ghoulish aspect to it. I, we're seeing a country being demolished in real time. And uh, that, that's not great. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, I, I go back and forth about that because it's not something I feel good about profiting from, but it, it is the reality. Uh, the last, the Arab Spring happened because grain prices went through the roof and people couldn't afford to eat. I think at, the, at a minimum, something like that's going to happen. So the knock-on effect when you have your fourth largest grain exporter in the world essentially shut down, possibly forever because the infrastructure is being destroyed. Well, other countries are going to stop exports of food in order to keep it inside the country. So there's going to be this knock-on effect. Um, so to me, figuring out a way, I, I don't necessarily play in the futures market, so I don't necessarily want to buy wheat futures, but how do I express that view? It seems to me that uh, fertilizer might be a way to do it. Um, I'm still researching that, but something to do with uh, soft commodities and probably fertilizer is something that seems interesting to me right now. Um, something like copper, I, I, you know, I, I think the bull case on copper has been done to death. Um, and I, but for me, it's more about industrialization and electrification. Uh, it's less about electric cars. Uh, and it's more about just, you know, the, the things that we need in, in North America, if we're going to re reindustrialize. Right. And, uh, um, you know, 
Oh, lith- uh, lithium is not uh, a thing that I invest in. I just don't feel like I have an edge there. Um, what little I know about lithium and, and batteries as well is it, when commodities become too expensive, smart guys like Elon Musk will figure out how to replace them. You know, copper, nickel, those are the things that you kind of know in a car are not going anywhere, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're sort of foundational to the battery. Um, uh, so copper's another one. I think some of the others are probably... Uh, uh, that I, I think are interesting are probably not the common ones that you'd hear. Like, uh, uh, you know, I know that hot world copper coil uh, steel is a uh, finished product, but uh, if you think about it, the U- United States, if you look at the U.S. steel, for example, they're just printing money right now. Uh, I own something called Algoma Steel. In my opinion, it's not run by the greatest people and it's a de-spec, but uh, I, I think the U.S. is structurally importing, you know, they're, they're kind of in a situation that they're structurally importing steel i don't think they can produce enough in, in, internally um that seems interesting to me I, I i guess what i would say bill is it's less about the commodity it's how can i express the view in a way that's going to make me the most money and uh, uh you and i were talking offline about uranium and uh uranium is a good example of that am i bullish on uranium kind of you know i'm not bullish on uranium that i want to buy junior mining stocks um i want to be in a different part of the value chain so i, I don't know if that really answers your question so much. It's it's less about the company and more about how I'm going to express that view in a way that's going to um, uh, turn turn a profit for me and, and at an acceptable rate of return. I, I can tell you there are some things that I'm not particularly bullish on. I, I'm not a I'm not a silver bug. Um, uh, I I just think the the way streaming works and byproducts work that um, you know I, I think silver is more of an industrial metal and there's just too much of it out there and there are these for sellers in terms of streaming contracts and, and this sort of thing, which so I, I I'm not a fifty dollar silver guy, and I'm, I'm going to hope. Please don't send me any. Hate don't worry, some that. people will flog you for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly well. Um, I I'm also like I don't know how to express this in a in a way that's going to get people angry at me, but I'm not a two hundred dollar oil guy either. You know. Um, what about one forty though? Can you give me one forty? Yeah. So if I'm going to express that view on on oil, like. I think but you invest have, in oil companies, right? I do invest in oil yeah. companies, right? And but again, so I, I just recently sold Meg Energy, and uh, that was a deleveraging story, right? They they deleveraged. It went from where I bought it. Some people bought it as little as three dollars. I bought it at eight nine. Uh, it's trading at twenty four today, um, but I think the it probably trades in line with oil going forward. And I'm just not seeing a hundred dollar oil, you know. Um, gas is expensive but oil is at 80 80 bucks and i i think that probably has more to do with um refinery capacity and so maybe refineries are the way to go the refineries are printing money right and so uh being bullish on a commodity doesn't necessarily mean you have to buy the producer of the commodity i i, I think there are some people who are going to do very well buying refi- i don't own any refiners by the way but i think there are some people who are going to do very well owning refiners and have done very well uh, I'm sure you've heard the same people uh, that I have talking about Tidewater and offshore. Um, you know, I'm sure they're going to do very well. And again, that's a post-bankruptcy play. So do you study f- and look for more of the post-bankruptcy plays, even more so than timing a commodity turn? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of both. Because if, if you get the post-bankruptcy play right and, and you get the commodity, the price of the commodity correct, uh, wonderful things can happen, right? And so if I had gotten the natural gas cycle wrong with Antero, um, that's a much different story than going from one dollar to you know four dollars to forty dollars. That's uh, four dollars to one dollar. 
and uh, and those options are expiring worthless, right? So you do kind of have to get both correct. And it's, uh, there are simpler ways to make a buck. That's why uh, the risk, you know, the risk return has to be there because I can put my money in a bank stock or an index fund or something like that and, you know, make pretty close to a double digit return over the last 10 years. So if I'm going to take a lot of this extra risk and have all these moving parts, then the return has to be there. And I, I think that's the thing that people need to understand that there's there's any number of ways to make money in, in not just mining stocks, but in the market. And you have to find what works for you and, and drill down on that. Sultan, before you go, any other names you like right now that you could share? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big royalty guy. Uh, I think the royalty model has been, you know, I don't think you need me to tell you about the, the wonders of the royalty model, but uh, I like Elemental Altus. Um, it's the, it was uh, created through the merger of Altus Strategies and Elemental. Elemental kind of came onto my radar when Gold Royalty made a hostile bid. And uh, Fred Bell, the CEO, he really impressed me. Just, uh, uh, I'll keep my opinions on Gold Royalty to myself. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, he did a really good job explaining the value prop. And he convinced me, he made a believer out of me. And so I ended up uh, buying some stock. I had or, you know, and then when they bought, Alta Strategies, as just a, as a merger are, I ended up buying a big position in Alta Strategies, and I looked at that. Now they've been buying, uh, increasing their royalty on Casarones, uh, the big copper deposit. So it gives you a nice way to play copper. Uh, there's about nine or ten other, um, probably nine other producing royalties. But I think the big value here is if you go back and look at the press release that came out last week, um, that's Altus portfolio of African assets. Pardon the pun, is a gold mine. There is a lot of value there. There are six Egyptian um, assets that could probably be spun into another company. There have been others who have talked about this. Uh, the Matt Geiger, I think, puts out a letter where he's kind of walked through these assets. Uh, so if people who want more information could probably start there. But I think the Altus portfolio is uh, going to generate a ton of value. The deal that they did last week, look, uh, you know, and I know these are places like Mali. And Burkina Faso and Egypt that are not traditional, not traditional places that people tend to want to go. But you know, the good thing about royalty companies is cash flow is valued at a high multiple, and you know, you don't necessarily have to run the mine. Uh, I've done very well investing in certain parts of Africa. I owned Orca Gold before it got taken up by Perseus Mining last year, and um, I think people looked at it as Sudan. But if you kind of drill down and looked a little bit closer, what I was told and what I was able to verify is that that deposit, that block deposit was actually just over the border from Egypt. And Egypt is, you know, is considered very good ter- virgin territory to to mine. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about Arabian Shield, which Definitely. is also... My second sponsor was Aton Resources there in Egypt. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, it's... Um, I, I think there's a lot of value there. I think Egypt is incredibly valuable. I think that that Mali royalty that they just created is going to be incredibly valuable. What's a 3% royalty worth? I don't know. Is it on a project level? Is it equivalent to what, owning 20% of the project, 10% of the project? I don't know. Uh, reasonable people can come to a conclusion and you don't have to put another dollar into it. Um, I think the other thing that I liked, about, that I realized from the Perseus deal was Africa is probably the easiest place to get a mine permitted and built quickly. And the grades are good and you can make a lot of money doing it. Um, the other thing I took out of that was even though there were problems in Sudan, nobody was going to mess with that mine because everyone needs US dollars to come in. And so I think the risk of nationalization in certain instances is overblown. And, and Africa, like any other place, is not a homogenous region. And, and the same way you wouldn't invest the same way in Arizona as you would in Nevada. You you know, very close, not the same. 
And I think if you if you're willing to do the work uh, on elemental altus, uh, I think you'll find so, uh, something that you can buy, put away, and eventually turn into a nice little cash flow machine. Um, something else that I like is uh, I was trying to come up with a variety of kind of names here that kind of cover the gamut. Um, one that I like is Samel Resources. This is a greenfield exploration, so please don't put your life savings into it. So you do uh, do exploration here and there. Position <laughs> sizing, yes. uh, you know. Uh, this, this I like for two reasons. Um, I like the guy in charge. Uh, you know, it's Greenfield Exploration. I don't know if they're going to find anything. It's in a nice area. Uh, they're, they're partnered with South 32. Uh, they're drilling in uh, a part of Argentina that's very hot right now, the San Juan uh, province. Uh, but Dr. Ruben Padilla, you know, very impressive guy in my opinion. I, I, this is a bet on a man. Uh, it may or may or may not work. Obviously, the, the rocks have to be there, but He's got a nice big piece of property, and he's going what he calls elephant hunting. You know, I, I, you know, there aren't uh, there are nice people in this sector. I, you know, I'm willing to give him a little bit of money and see how he does. And uh, the, but like all things, the, the balance sheet kind of has to be there. I don't think it's going to get deleted, deleted anytime soon. They have two royalties that they can sell to finance. They've got a lot of cash, so you're basically trading at a zero enterprise value. Uh, so you got a lot of runway to see if the thesis plays out, and so. If he if he does a good job, that can be obviously good drill hole. I mean, what's the the ending of your show? A good drill hole can uh, produce you know, a billion dollars. Ross B said, "Produce a billion dollars, yeah. right?" <laughs> the, and the it's outro, in a part of the, yeah. yeah, and it's 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 uh, it's in a good part of the world for for that sort of thing. And then I think the last one is uh, one that I like. I have a full position in. Uh, not for everybody. It's uh, uh, I'm a sucker for aggregates. I'm a sucker for. Um, you know, that crushed stone, anything you can use in construction, because if you kind of think about that intuitively, you're, you, you have a monopoly in that area because the, the, pri the price to truck it kind of determines that they have to buy from you and they can go somewhere further away. But as long as you price it properly, they can't go further away and aggregate is aggregate, right? And so um, uh, Vulcan Minerals isn't exactly aggregate. And this is Vulcan Minerals, not Vulcan Materials. It trades on the TSX Venture. It's a prospect generator that has generated um uh spun out atlas salt and atlas salt owns uh, a large salt dome uh, uh you know salt is used for a variety of things i'm going to give you a big uh so obviously you put salt in your food you put salt on the road but it, salt is also an industrial uh, uh input it's used for polyester it's used for plastics it's used for all kinds of things um there's the Goderich mine in uh, southwestern Ontario, uh, underneath Lake Huron. That's the big producer, but structurally in North America, we import salt. And so where this Atlas salt deposit is, it's in Newfoundland. It's in a place where uh, work is hard to come by, so high value jobs. I, I suspect the thing gets built, personally. Um, uh, you know, And I, more importantly, it's on the water, so you can transport easily. And so I think it has the potential to, and the company, the company kind of goes through this, um, has potential to disrupt the sector. Uh, they produce cheaper than Goderich because they're not going as deep down. Um, so what does all this mean for Vulcan Minerals? Because Atlas Salt is a separate company. Well, you get Vulcan Minerals owns 33% of Atlas Salt. That's worth about $45 million. The market cap today of Vulcan Minerals is $22 million. Uh, well, what about the cash burn, you say? Well, Vulcan Minerals has about, last time I checked, about $6 million in cash. So it can run for a while before it has to dilute. Um, like any good prospect generator, they were able to keep royalties on the on the salt deposit. So it's a three percent royalty on 
the Atlas deposit, there's also a 3% uh, royalty on another company uh, or another deposit that's in another company that's also going to be spun out called Triple Point. They're now into about 10% of that. I figure that's worth about three to $5 million. And those two royalties themselves probably worth about in a ballpark it in my head, we'll call it forty to sixty million dollars. And uh, you know, obviously, that what's the risk here that those deposit those that salt mine doesn't get built, uh, or that the price of salt collapse? I don't think so. It's pretty stable over the years, um, and so we're in a market where I think you'd agree we're not in a bull market for resource stocks. But this is a good time if you know what you own, you can slowly accumulate good assets that will pay you down the line tenfold. And I think this is a case where uh, Vulcan Minerals, if you're, you know, whether it's K plus S or whether it's Compass Minerals or, or you know, somebody's going to end up buying this deposit, um, you know, but that shouldn't be the be all and end all. But I think that's probably your base case. If that happens, it makes sense to not just buy the deposit, but to buy the royalty as well, because salt mines last for hundreds of years. So if, if that happens, a stock that you can buy today for, we'll call it somewhere between 19 and 22 cents. I don't know. What's that worth? Two dollars? Possible. One fifty? Possible. I think my base case is probably ten x, and so I'm willing to put that money in, you know, a full position, knowing that it could get cut in half or go to zero. And by the way, it's a prospect generator. They've also got some very prospective properties and other things that are optioned out. Um, gold deposit, uh, you know, properties with some prospective gold, prospective nickel, um, copper. Uh, you know, so I think there's a lot of ways to win here. That's the kind of stock that I want to own in this market. Just a lot of assets that I can buy, uh, particularly cheap. It's not a good. It's not a good market for uh, buying recaps or, or or buying things that with balance sheet issues. But this sort of thing, you know, is uh, these are kind of companies that I can buy and kind of hold and not have to worry about the balance sheet blowing up, which is kind of my my general base case when a lot of times when I'm buying something with a financial distress on. Sultan, thank you for sharing those names and why you invested. Before you go, Consolidated Rock Holding Company, that's your company, and your website is consolidatedrock.com. What will investors find there? Um, a lot of out-of-date material. I will do. I will endeavor after this podcast to do my best to update that. Um, what Consolidated Rock does is uh, it basically functions as my personal holding company, and I use that to partner with other people to make private investments. And so what I own right now is, and hence the name, is uh, uh, it started out life as a roll-up of rock quarries and aggregates, and uh, um, and that that did okay for me. Uh, and that right now, I own a piece of a frac sand royalty, and that's actually taught me a lot about the royalty business. Um, it's not as easy as they make it sound, you know. It's uh, yes, it's a check cashing business, but you also have to make sure that you're being uh, you're being told what the proper volumes are. How do you do that without somebody on the ground? What's your legal recourse? It's it's been a very interesting education in um, uh, not just the frac sand market, but also in how royalties actually work and uh, the value of a good company. So the assets matter, but in a royalty company, you're really investing in uh, the asset allocation skills of the person in charge. Um, so, so Consolidated Rock is sort of my private holding company. It's uh, um, it's allowed me to make investments that I wouldn't otherwise be able to make. Um, I, I I do okay, but uh, can I write a seven figure check tomorrow? Well, that, that might be a bit of a stretch. So, um, I, I and if I'm going to put that kind of money in, probably prefer to do that in the public market right now. 
so that's that's sort of a consolidated rock is I think for most people, my Twitter account is probably where I'm most active and where they find the most relevant information. Um, that said, there's a contact me uh, form. That's how you and I got in touch. Um, I, I try to respond to as many emails as I can. Uh, the only thing I ask is uh, please don't, if you have problems with my stock picks, please uh, talk to Bill or something. <laughs> yeah, you know. right. Take responsibility for your own decisions. Like yes. this is for yeah. information purposes only. You take yeah. the information and apply it with knowledge according to where yeah. your financial situation absolutely. is. Right, Sultan? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciated this conversation. It's been great chatting with you offline and online via this uh, recorded podcast. So thank you for coming on the show today, Sultan. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.